Our Father in heaven, we know that when we are in Christ Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come, and we would love to enter into that kind of life where the stuff of our past is let loose and we can move forward in life. Keep us from stepping backward, from falling backward, from going off the path, from straying. Please, I pray. This is our day. You put our feet on solid ground and you marched us forward. May we stay in step with what you want to do in our lives. May we not live to ever grieve the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. May we live to please him. May we walk in step with what he wants to do. And, and may we live to give you honor, we pray. May we be people who are not just casual Christians, but may we be all in. We pray this to the glory of your dear son, Jesus, our risen Savior. And the church says amen. amen. Give it up for the team, would you? Thank them. <laughs> Woo! Great job. So I'm thinking about the series called All In, and we, we started it with, first of all, we, we come to Christ and, and we make the commitment to follow him, but we have to do that all in. He wants us all the way in the boat, not just halfway in, halfway out. And since we're all in, then once we're in the boat, then we want to go all out for him. We don't want anything held back. But if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll go all under. And the way that happens is if somehow we back off in our followership, if you can use that term, our followership of Christ. And the way that happens is so subtle and so easy that it happens to the best of us. Today what I want to share with you is not something that's just all that complex. It's a really simple, simple concept. I'm in Acts chapter 2. We're going to just pan our way through several pages of the book of Acts. But when the what happens at the end of uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' four different stories of the life and the death and the burial resurrection of Christ. As a resurrected Lord then heads to heaven, he says to that first group of followers, Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in this area and in Judea, Samaria, and then the outer edges of the earth, you will be my witnesses. That's what you'll be known for, is telling your faith story. In other words, you'll be all in, you'll be going all out, and as we're going to see, the main thing they had to worry about was going all under. And so he takes that, that concept, and then Jesus goes back to the Father in heaven, the right hand of the Father, and by Acts chapter 2, what happens is these guys get filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have to remember, these guys are from all over the world. And they came to, uh, to celebrate a festival in, in the Holy Land at the time. But they don't understand each other's languages. It's kind of like the Olympic Games, where you have three or four or six languages at every restaurant and every little cafe. And they kind of get along because they're there for a common good. That's what was happening during this feast time in the Holy Land. So they don't understand each other, but the Holy Spirit comes on them, and then they begin to speak in languages where they begin to realize, I can understand what you're saying because it's coming out in your language, but I'm hearing it in mine. And, and quite frankly, that was, that was miraculous. Well, then we knew this is of the Lord. By Acts chapter 2, Peter says to them, let me explain to you what has happened. And he begins to quote Old Testament passages and to say, this is the Messiah, the one we've been looking for, the Savior of the world, 
and you, and he points to the Jews, to the religious group of the day, and he says, and you are the ones who crucified him, and you need to come, and you need to accept him into your own life, in your own heart. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And by Acts chapter 2, verse 41, he completes the message, and it says, verse 41, those who accepted the message were baptized. What happens to them? They have this inward change because of the sharing of the faith that was, they realize is theirs, and now they go public with it. They connect with the other believers. They're baptized. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and they gave to anyone who had, as he had need. They realized their followers, they want to connect with those followers and identify with the other brothers and sisters in Christ because they had seen the resurrected Lord too. And what set them apart was they had seen a guy who died come back to life. It was miraculous. And if there was ever any doubt, now they see his confirmation by the tongues given, they realize this really is of the Lord. And when Peter says, it is the Savior, he's the one you've been looking for, the whole Testament really prophesies this coming. They believe the message, verse 41. That's the story of, 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 of people sharing their faith. When they share the faith, they believe it, they get baptized, that's connecting. They devote themselves to the apostles' uh, teaching, that's growing in their faith. And they break bread and they pray, which is this act of worship, this solemn act of worshiping the God who saves us and who, who cares enough to visit us and then they gave to whatever needs that were in the crowd. They gave to them. Why? Because they were all out of towners. They were staying longer than expected. People were running out of money and certainly out of food. They began to serve each other without hesitation. And why? Because they had seen a dead guy walk. They saw a guy who was in the ground get up. And they, it wasn't just a ghost. They saw him eat. They touched him. They saw him teach. They saw him around town. They couldn't deny it, and they could not go back. And the only way to go then is forward. And so that's our prayer, that we won't go back. I'm not going back. I'm, I'm leaving it behind me. I'm, I'm, by the grace of God, we're going to move forward. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't go back. So they, they began to gather, and they began to circle up little groups of believers and those little groups of believers met in houses. When it got to be too big, they went to a hillside. And so they had small group meetings in houses. They had large group meetings in hillsides. And they met daily at temple courts, hillsides, houses. And they broke bread and they gave to each other, had need. And you know what? They didn't, because they, were, they didn't even know each other hardly, but they, because they were followers, someone had a need, they would actually sell their stuff and say, you have a need? Uh, you, okay, let me see what I can do. I'm going to go home and sell some things. The money I get from that, I'm going to give to you. I, when, is, when have you seen that before? Huh? I mean, have you, does anybody on your block do that? I mean, no one on my block does. I and mean, they like me, but no one says, I'll sell my stuff to give to you. I, that's how convinced they were. See? They didn't say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to show up to church occasionally. No, no, no. They met together in small groups and large in these huddles. Basically, what they did was encourage each other. And because the big issue was not, uh, is, was not the big doctrinal issue. You'll always have doctrinal issues. The big issue was, I just need to be encouraged to follow the Lord and to be faithful and to stay at it and not give up because the days are going to be hard. And so they gather, and, and encouragement is what they do. Now here's, let me, let me tell you what happens. What happens with us is this. We start out in a relationship with Christ, and typically, that relationship is all in. In other words, we want to follow him fully, and it's all out. We're, we're, 
we're putting all our energy into it. But then something happens along the way. Something happens that gives us reason to pause. We're giving it all, but others aren't. We're growing weary. This isn't as happy as I thought it would be. It's harder. Um, there's more conflict involved in following Christ. But the tendency is in that, as you, if you follow Christ very long, the tendency is then to drift or it is to back off on the throttle and become selfish, what's in it for me, or, or it's to just lose general energy. And it happens all the time. It happens in churches today. It happened in the book of Acts. And if you read from Acts going to the right, which is Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, all the letters to the churches, they were constantly on guard for that. So what was the thing that they did? You're in Acts 2. Just turn a few more pages, would you? The study today is so simple. Turn back to chapter 11. If you're in Acts 2, go to 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, go to 11. And verse 23. Verse 22, the news reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas is this great encourager. He's the one, he sells us a farm piece of property and gives it to the poor, Okay? And he's, he is now known, we think his name's, we don't really know his real name. He's called Barnabas, which is a kind of code for the brother of encouragement. If I had a brother sell a piece of property and give me the money, he would be my best brother, would he not? Would he be your best friend for at least the day? He is the brother of encouragement or the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. So they send Barnabas to Antioch, verse 23 now. And when they arrived there, they saw that the grace of God had been done, and he was glad, and what did he do? He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. You get that? With all their hearts. What is the biggest issue? Is that you will, you will worship the Lord, but not with all your heart. You'll sing, uh, great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Great is the Lord. Oh, when is this song going to be done? See, somehow it just becomes routine. And it isn't awesome. Hold your hand in Acts 11 here. Go back. I just saw this this morning. This is really good. When Dave gets off track, it gets better. Do you ever have a sermon? You don't have, I think in sermons. I have sermons inside of sermons, and I go, whoa, Dave needs this. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. When was the last time you said, I just love the Lord, he is marvelous? He is marvelous. I thought about that. I haven't used that word in a while. Because we made fun of it a few years ago. Remember that? Marvelous. His right hand, his holy arm, it works salvation. Get that salvation for him. Verse 3, he has remembered his love, his faithfulness in Israel. Verse 4, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. When was the last time you went to a, uh, a worship service and went out going, wow, that was jubilant? <laughs> you ever done? Wow, God is incredible. With trumpets, blasts of the ram's horn, shout for joy to the Lord, the king. Let the sea resound, verse 7, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, even the hills rejoice. You can feel it in the mountains. This is a, it's a majestic moment. Let them sing before the Lord because he comes to judge the earth. This is actually a kingdom passage. 
that's worship. Somehow we lose heart. And what does Barnabas do? He says, verse 23, remember the grace of God and he's glad and he encourages them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So he just encourages them, follow the Lord. It's gonna get rough, it's gonna be tough. Follow the Lord with all your heart, chapter 14. Go back another page or two, Acts 14. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city, they're in Antioch now, and one large number of disciples so you get this, people were coming to Christ even as the church was gathering, okay? So don't think just because people walk into church that they are believers. Just because you walk into a garage doesn't make you what? A car, right, okay? Just because they walk into a facility doesn't make them necessarily buying in. So people come to Christ even in the midst of the services, then they return to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch and gathering the disciples and what are they doing? They're encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Do you get this? This is during the first days of the church and they're saying be true to the faith and encourage each other so much more as you see the day approaching. Just be, be on guard because you're going to lose it one of these days. Verse 22, we're going to go through hardships. It's going to happen for you to enter the kingdom of God. Turn the page again, one more, chapter 20. This one doesn't have the exact, although it's a great word study. Just do the word study of the word encourage in the book of Acts. It's a great study. But this is just kind of gives you the, the foundational piece. Acts 20, verse 32. Now, by this point, uh, Paul is saying goodbye to people on a boat dock. and He knows he's never going to see them again. And he says, now I commit to you God and to the word of his grace. So he's saying, I'm committing, to you, I'm committing you to God and to the word of his grace. And it can build you up and give you an inheritance. He's saying, I'm gonna give you to God and the word of his grace. In other words, be filled with the grace of God. Why? Because it's gonna be what's gonna build you up. You see, when you start out this Christian life, you start out all out for Jesus and you somehow you lose your way or you drift, or you lose steam, and it's not with all your heart, and then there isn't the encouragement. In fact, I think there is a tendency with every Christian organization, with everything that ever happens, it eventually turns on itself, as good as it is, it turns on itself, and it becomes about us. Have you ever noticed that? It becomes about me. It becomes about you. It becomes about our comfort or what we want. Instead of us doing something great, for God or with God in giving glory to God, it becomes something about the conveniences that we would expect. I'm reminded of a, of a survey that was given to people who were out in the Rocky Mountains and they were climbing the Pikes Peak kind of mountains and they asked them in survey, what would you like if the, if the trails were cut away and they were cutting brush and making the trails sit, uh, passable, but it was still very treacherous. They asked the campers, what would you like along the way? Do you know what they responded? I'm thinking, you know, fewer bears, a, little, a guardrail. Do you know what they asked for? A McDonald's. <laughs> Why? Because it's about us. Now, if you were to put a McDonald's at the 14,000 foot mark going up a mountain, they would think you're crazy. But that's what we do. 
The year was 1611. Uh, the country was England. The king at the time's name was James. Uh, a political guy, a great king, good king. I, don't, I didn't really know him, but... 1611. He's, uh, he's ruling, but there's a Bible out there, but no one can read it. It's written in Latin. And uh, you have to go to uh, upper educational schools to get the Latin. And most religious groups that teach Latin will only do it if you sign on that you're going to go with them in their de denomination, with their, within their religion. So what happens is then religious leaders could tell you anything that the Bible says. The Bible says you can only walk east on Thursdays. You could say anything you wanted because people couldn't read the Latin. They didn't know. And, and the other languages, it was written in Hebrew, Old Testament, Aramaic, kind of in between language and then uh, Greek. And people didn't read those languages, and so they could not read the Bible as their own. The Latin version we call the Septuagint. Maybe you've heard of that. So these people have a monopoly on the language, and King James says it shouldn't be that way. So he goes all out, and he gets a group of scholars together to write a version of the Bible that anybody on the street could understand and it becomes perhaps the most loved version of the Bible ever in history. It's called the King James Version of the Bible, 1611 version. Now, that was the, it was the best and most contemporary version today. And you know what? People don't want to give it up because now since it's antiquated, for a version that's good for today, 2015. Why? Because we want to do what we did before because it's about us not about the gospel itself see or they'll take that bible that was written in plain language have you ever heard this guys who preach and i've heard this before they'll tell me you need to listen to him he's really deep in fact he's so deep you can't even understand him <laughs> okay why would i be listening to that why would i go to hear that guy if i'm not gonna get it you understand what's happening we've made it about us Preachers have made it about them rather than about Jesus. It was the uh, 1860s, same country, England. There was a guy there who lived in, uh, in a small village in England, and he was a printer. His dad was a printer. Uh, he owned a magazine, some newspapers. His name's Robert Rakes. Had a wonderful love for Jesus, loved the Lord. But he would walk the streets and he saw street kids, little urchin kids that just hardly had a home. They worked six days a week, oftentimes 12 and 14 hour days. These kids were not birthed to be part of a family. They were birthed to be part of the sweatshop. And uh, these kids didn't know how to read or write, not because they didn't have time to go to school because their parents didn't have the money. So these kids were literally street kids who ate off of the street but worked in the sweatshops and that's illegal in the U.S. today, that kind of, we have child labor laws. Sadly, other parts of the world still have that conflict happening. And, and in England, that was the case of the day. And Robert Rakes, his heart broke for them as he realized they're going to grow up and they won't be able to read and write, but even worse, they won't know Jesus. And so Robert decided on his one day off a week, he would start a school for children who were from the street. And he taught them how to read and write. And when he did that, then he turned them to the scriptures and he began to teach them the Bible on Sundays and it became known as a Sunday school. 
It was for street kids. Within 50 years, the estimates are uh, in England alone, 1.2 million children were in Sunday schools. Okay? Tell me today where there's a Sunday school anywhere in the U.S. that reaches street kids who can't read and write, who work 12 hours a day, just whatever you want. I'm telling you, what happened is this. Most Sunday schools I see are all about us, about church kids, our kids, keeping them off the street and keeping them well-educated. See how it turns? What started out as a great outreach piece turned. What started as the king's version of English for a a Bible anybody could get ends up becoming uh, uh, a divisive point that people hang on to. It it doesn't make sense. It was so well-intended and somewhere along the line it got messed up. Uh, I think of, when I was growing up, we had great hymns of the faith. And I thank the Lord for that. When I was growing up, we had a thing called a hymnal. Anybody know what a hymnal is? It's a songbook. had notes, four-part harmonies. Had, and, um, and it was it's a great, great hymnal. Every, everybody in the hymnal, in order to get in the hymnal, you had to die. I mean, you would be have a song in the hymnal. You had to be gone at least 100 years. So, so we sang old hymns. And they were great hymns, but then new songwriters came, and you know what? You know why they did that? Because they wanted to reach people who wouldn't sing hymns. But here's the, the issue. They'd sing on streets and in open places. They'd sing anywhere. And people came to Jesus. They became so popular, they ended up going to concert halls. Now they charge ticket prices. Do you understand what's happening? Nobody's going to pay money. If you don't already believe in Jesus, you're not going to pay money to hear a guy sing about someone you don't believe in. See? See how it's worked against itself? It started out so good. Christian camping, Christian education, it just seems to always turn inward. And that's why the church always has to look outward. And the day we stop that is the day we become discouraged and we don't fully trust the Lord. In fact, all we're doing is protecting our own turf. It becomes very inwardly drawn. And so what I want to give to you this morning are five kind of um, uh, myths that uh, are, are obvious myths that you may not even realize that take the wind out of your sails, that make you drift away from full-hearted devotion, that may be actually lying to you and may be taking you off course. And the five myths I want to give to you have five answers as well. And um, I'm, do, I'm connecting the five to worship, connect, grow, serve, and share, which are the, the great commission, great commandment pieces of Jesus. But I asked the staff a couple weeks ago, would you help me with this sermon? This, this is kind of a collective sermon. But I asked them, I said, give me seven myths. Well, they gave me nine, and, and they were great. I boiled it down to five, but you're going to have one in between these five that's going to be yours. You're going to have something that's a, your own sixth myth, and you jot it down as I give you the five that I see are so obvious. The first one's in the area of worship. And the first area of worship, the first myth is this. It's the question, what's in it for me? Okay, that is going to discourage you, take the wind out of your sails, cause you to drift to get off course every time because it's not about you. Um, You ever heard this before? You walk out of church, you go into the Denny's or the Red Lobster or or Panera, wherever it is that you go to get lunch, and you say to another person, boy, worship today was good, wasn't it? You You heard that or said that? I've said that. Worship today was smoking. I don't know what that means, but it was smoking. 
It was good. And then other weeks, yeah, they didn't bring it today. It was just okay. It was all right. It was, it was okay. They've done better. You know what that's telling you? That's telling you you don't get worship. Because worship isn't something you come see. It's something you come to offer. Okay? It is you presenting worth. That's the old English term. It's you presenting worth to God. These are just the people leading us to celebrate his worth. Okay? So the first myth is, what's in it for me? Or here's another thing, too. Sometimes people say, boy, the worship was really good. And then they'll say, and the teaching wasn't half bad either. Like, like okay, and then they'll, they'll, come in, they'll come in late and go, I missed the worship, but I made it for the word, which is good. I'm glad you made it for the word. But you need to know this. That musical time is just as immersed in the word as the word time is. If you go back and look at the music that we do, oftentimes it comes, I can actually write references as we're singing to the scripture that we're singing. And that's why it's so important that even the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable. We want you, that music to resound in your heart like the psalmist said, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart. And I sing and make melody in my heart, Ephesians 4 and 5. Sing and make melody in my heart because I'm going to be singing the, this theology to God during the week. You can't always walk around with a Bible in your hand, but what you can do is you can walk around with the Word of God in your heart. Music is a great way to do that. So don't ever discount, like, oh, it's just the warm-up. No, it's not the warm-up. It is the presentation of our voices to God. That's worship. So don't, uh, I'm going to encourage you, don't ask yourself when you walk in, what's in it for me? And you do need to be fed the word of God. That's true. You always want to be fed the word of God without question. But the truth is, worship is is offering worth to God. It's my announcement of my heart, my soul, my strength, uh, everything, all my being. For great is the Lord and he is worthy of praise, Psalm 96. Secondly, is in this area of connecting. The myth is that the church is a building. I go to church but the truth is, we are the church. I don't go to church. I go to a church building. But I don't, I don't, I am part of the church. You are part of the church. And so the church is gathered, assembled. That's the New Testament word. We assemble and then we disperse. And when we disperse, we're still the church. We're just out there. We are salt and light in the community. We're still the church, though. And then we're gathered. Now, some would say, well, I don't like to gather because my faith is private. And my word to you is this. You cannot find that in Scripture. We find very personal faith. It's true. But all throughout the New Testament, what I find is Christians are, are not in isolation. Even when they're in mission work, they're in partners. There's always a group or a team. There's always a cluster. And most of the time, there's a whole congregation. And the reason for that is this. You will stay encouraged when you stay with the crowd. And you move together like a mighty army moves the church of God, the song would say. But when you get isolated, that's when discouragement can set in, and that's when you lose heart, which is what they're afraid of in the book of Acts. So you'll know how to conduct yourselves, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in God's household, that's the church, God's household, the church, which is the church of the living God. It's the people that are the church. Thirdly, it's this area of growth. Uh, we want to grow in faith, but, but there is the myth, and the myth is this. 
I just need to know more. So I'm never ready, okay? And the reality is none of us are ever ready. None of us ever know it all. I read the Bible every day or nearly every day, every day of the year. And there are times I read it and go, wow, that was there? And I remember it again. And I've been reading it for a long time. So I'm always in growth mode. So are you going to be. You're not always going to have it figured out. I think I have the end times figured out. I've read Revelation, Thessalonians, I've gone to Daniel, looked at Zechariah, Zephaniah. The more you read, the more confusing it gets. I think I have it figured out mostly, but maybe not all the way. I'll never have it all figured out until I finally see it. You ever had that happen? Or you could read it in a book all day long, then someone says, hey, uh, you know, you're installing something at home, you're doing something. And I say, just get on YouTube. You put it on YouTube and go, oh, that's how it goes. You ever had that happen? Just me. Okay, that's all right. Let me tell you, the word's YouTube. It will save your marriage right there. Show you how to put stuff together. So, so the point is this. You never have all the knowledge that you need. And here's the, here's the truth. The truth is knowing is not discipleship. You can have a lot. In fact, I just talked with a, a guy the other day about this. The more you know, the more there is this potential that you could be puffed up because knowledge puffs up. Not to put a, a premium on ignorance, we're not saying that, but knowledge can puff up if we're not careful. So you want to know the truth, but you want to put that truth into motion so you're applying it, so you're thinking it, so you're doing it, and that changes your attitude, and that's what transformational living is all about. Uh, Francis Chan says it better than I can in two minutes. Watch this two-minute clip, and I'll come right back. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. Right? Most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is, uh, you know, you just, Simon Says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus Says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, 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 you study it, you memorize You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of the things we do, when he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? They memorized it. You know, I tell my daughter, hey, hey, Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. <laughs> my friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know. It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who was asked the question one day, do you have trouble with portions of the Bible that you don't understand? 
And Lincoln responded, no, I have trouble with the portions of the Bible that I do understand. <laughs> so it isn't that you need to know more, it's that we need to act on what we know, okay? It isn't, that, it isn't to say that we shouldn't be growing in our knowledge of the one who is above all and his word, not to say we should stop growing, but we need to just put it into motion, not think that somehow the knowledge is all in all. Number four, it's this aspect of serving. The myth is that the church exists to serve me. It is all about me, it's for me. But the church has never been about you. It's never been for you. It's always been about God and his purposes and, and getting God's agenda done through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you join in partnership with what God is doing here on the earth, then you're part of that church that's like a mighty army that is moving. See, and then it's a, it's a great experience of faith. On arriving there, Acts chapter 14, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done to them. And then the, the open doors of faith that happened. They gathered the church, there it is again. They gathered the church, it assembled, and as it assembled, they began to tell the stories that what God had done. When we think it's about us, uh, that's a, it's a dangerous place to be. You see how, how easy that is to happen, though? So easy for us uh, to think that I, I want it my way, I want it done my way in my timing, when really it isn't about us. It's about completing God's agenda in Charles County and then Southern Maryland and then the world. Number five, it's this aspect of sharing. And the myth is I have to get my act together to tell my faith story. In other words, I have to live the perfect Christian life, and that way when my words make sense, and it's true, you need to live a good Christian life, but some of us will never tell our faith story. Why? Because we never get our act together, and the reality, again, is you'll never have your act together. No one's ever ready. But, but, telling your faith story is actually good for your own soul. It actually helps you in your own move of holiness. John chapter 9 tells us uh, the story of, of a guy who is blind, and he is he, he can't see, his parents have been taking care of him his whole life, and then Jesus heals the guy. And of course, the religious group who doesn't like all that, they say, well, is it because of his sin, or is, it because it, or is Jesus a heretic? And then they look at the parents, and the parents say, we don't know what's going on, because they don't want to get stoned, because if they say Jesus is the Messiah, there's a chance they'd be thrown out of the religious community, or stoned, thrown out of town, or stoned, killed. So they don't, they don't want to respond. They say he's an adult, let him speak for himself. So they look at this guy who was blind, and they say, what's the story about Jesus? And he says, I, I, I'll tell you this, I, I don't know. All I know is yesterday I could not see, and today I can. That's witness, okay? All I know is, I, I don't know if the guy's a sinner or not. All I know is once I could not see, and now I can. And that's all God's asking you to do in, to be a witness, is just to tell your own story. Just to tell your own story. Before I close in prayer, let me go with me. You've been good. Go through Acts, Romans first. Go to 2 Corinthians, would you? This will all make sense here in about two minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I, I love to hear the rustle of the pages of the Bible. Uh, it's, it tells me you're looking it up. That's good. And if, you're, if you have an eye Bible, that's okay. Just the, Angels hear that too. I told you this, I was in a small group a year or so ago. I was like the oldest guy there in the group, and I was the only guy with a paper Bible. Everybody else had an e-Bible, something. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm leaving. I'm the only guy with a Bible. And a girl's reading the scriptures on her phone. But she's reading them. And partway in, she's, she's reading. And then she goes, oh, dang it. it. It went to sleep on me. Like, you know, my Bible went to sleep. My Bible never goes to sleep. I go to sleep. My Bible never goes to sleep. So if you have an electronic Bible, that's, that's great. Wonderful. Whatever version. People ask me, too, what version should I read? And I say, the version you will read. Yeah, the, the version you will read. And, um, and so, I mean, okay, 2 Corinthians 4. I just want to look at a few verses here, but here's the deal. The Apostle Paul, by the time he writes to this church in Corinth, which is Greece, essentially, the land of Greece today, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. God knocks him down on the path and says, why do you persecute me? And he becomes a follower of Jesus. But no one trusts Paul because now he's a follower, but he had actually been killing Christians. He's a murderer. And now he comes to Christ in faith, but the Christians don't believe him, so it takes years for him to be trusted. So now they trust him, and now that they trust him, his old friends now hate him, okay? And since they hate him, they're ready to kill him. They've beat him up, they've thrown him out of town, he, he has had every bad thing that you could think of happen to him and survive. It's happened to Paul, okay? So when he writes the book of 2 Corinthians, he knows what a bad day looks like because he's been beat up, stoned, thrown out of town, ridiculed, murmured, just anything that could be bad about him. Okay, now, in light of that context, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. This is the guy who got beat up, thrown out of town, has been spit at, ridiculed, rumored on, and he says, we do not lose heart. Say it with me. We do not lose heart. We have to say that in our hearts every day. Otherwise, the ship will go astray. It'll drift. It'll get off course. We'll lose full steam ahead. And we, won't, we will go back. We will not move forward. Verse 2. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Saying, so, so we're not using the word of God like a weapon. Instead, on the contrary, by setting forth the, plain, the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Skip down to verse 7. We have in this treasure in jars of clay to show his all-surpassing power. What's, it, what's he mean by jars of clay? He's saying, in, our, in my physical body. He's saying, his treasure is in jars of clay. It's, it's my body. Uh, it's all-surpassing power is from God, and it's not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who were alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He's saying the ministry we have is in this clay pot and I'm dying, but I'm being, I'm renewed because this is eternal stuff. End of the chapter now, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Say it. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And here's how you handle that adrift and that losing heart. Here it is, verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, what is unseen is eternal. So we do not lose heart. We're in this thing all in, and then we're going all out, but we're not about to go all under. Why? Because we see what's really happening. And even though it is heavy, we're being crushed and, and smashed and pushed and abused. He's saying, I'm still all those things. I'm down, but I'm not out. Why? Because I'm not looking at this temporary thing. I'm looking at the eternal. And that has to be our perspective. And when it does, you cannot lose. Let's bow together for prayer. Yeah. Let's stand together as we pray, shall we? Lord, you're the one who heals our soul. You're the one who makes us whole. As the songwriter said, you are our, our rock and our redeemer. We run to you, particularly when, the, when there's this tendency for us to lose heart, lose our way, pull off the uh, throttle somehow and not follow you fully. But we don't want to go to drift mode. We certainly don't want to go backwards. So the big question, what is it? Here it is, folks. What is it that causes you to lose heart? What is it? Can you put your hope in the things that are eternal and not just in the temporary things? Then another question might be, what's, what causes me to drift? What gets me off course or makes me not go full throttle for him? How can I lay that aside and run with patience the race set before me? How do I keep my eyes on Jesus? How do I do that? Lord, help me. That's your prayer. For some of us in the room, we say, you know what? The, the issue for me is I've never really embraced Christ in faith. I've never trusted him to be my Savior, my Lord. You do that right where you're standing. You used to open your heart in your own prayer, in your own life. You tell God the Father in heaven, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I need Christ to be my Savior. I, I need him in my life. You trust him and embrace him in faith. He promises he wants to save you, and he will you'll trust him and father for us to be all in and all out lord we want to be careful that we don't go all under and so encourage our hearts even in the assembly today that we meet to encourage each other so much more as we see the day approaching we pray this in the name of christ our resurrected savior the church says amen